Will you please take your Bibles and turn to Revelation 2? Please don't get nervous about the fact that we are covering two entire chapters. There's only going to be one slide. All seven points are going to be on one slide. And I have tried in the message this morning to boil things down. And I did that in part because I'm forgetful. And it's so easy to go through a passage to study it out and move right on, and you've forgotten everything you already learned. So sometimes it's just good to go back and review and recover because we just need to capitalize on what we've already learned. And as you can see from the outline, I'm still struggling with it, given that I have seven points and, for the most part, seven words, except for the first point, which I had to make two words long. And I know someone's going to come to me and say, you could have just said love instead of wholehearted devotion. I understand that, but I'm trying to be very, very close to what the text is teaching as a whole. I hope as we go through these chapters and the seven letters, some of the truths that we find there will just crystallize for us. That's my hope. When we study chapters 2 and 3 before, at the beginning of our study, we are trying to show how these chapters are a link to what's going to come afterward. That chapters 2 and 3 form the application of the epistle. It's a a prophecy, but it's it's written in, in the form of an epistle. Here is the application in chapters 2 and 3, and then the doctrine comes up in 4 and following. Of course, the doctrine is of future things. We often call it prophecy, but it is the truth, even though it is the truth that is to come, in contrast to sometimes we think of doctrine as the truth of the past, but it is still doctrine. Today, we want to recover what we learn from the seven messages And I believe at least one more week we'll give to these where we will uh, probably zoom out uh, from how specific we'll be today and uh, have some final lessons. But that is my hope today. So today I want to speak on a message to the churches, Christ's word to the seven churches. So my dear brothers and sisters in the Lord, today let's consider what matters in the church according to Christ. What matters in the church? According to Christ, let's pray. Father, we are thankful today for what we have been able to study. We pray now that we would be able to recover some of that and that you would solidify it in our hearts and that we would know that you grant us grace so that all of these things can be true of us if we would but submit ourselves to Jesus Christ and his work in our lives. We do pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Remodeling is not for the faint of heart. It requires money. Of course, that's the easy part in America. Remodeling requires a lot of choices. That's the hard part. Colors, textures, fixtures, patterns, and prices make for a whole lot of choices. But if someone is actually able to get through the demolition and the reconstruction, all those choices have been made, and those spaces have been remodeled. And you've probably been to a home where a a space has been remodeled, and perhaps you looked, you oohed, and you odd, and you thought, well, that's quite nice. But you may have gone there and thought, 
well, I would have done it just a bit differently. It's nice, but not what I would have chosen for myself. Well, when it comes to the Church of Jesus Christ, there is no shortage of a diversity of opinions. Certainly you've heard someone at some point say something about church folks. It may have been about the church's service times, or the length of the service, or the type of the service, or how congenial the people in the services were, or the lifestyle of the people outside of the service. I mean, the opinions of the church and people who go to church are endless. Well, of course, so is the advice to churches. Books and conferences promise the key to scaling the church and making it a success. If you want to grow the church, there's a plan for that for only $100 a month. If you want to expand your reach in the community, there are courses and kits for that starting at $100. And yet, there's something far better than all the opinions and advice that we hear. And that's the Word of God. And particularly, those things that are written specifically to the church. And in Revelation 2 and 3, we find that Jesus dictated to the Apostle John seven letters to seven churches. And we have studied those letters together in the course of 14 sermons so far. We've heard them. We've come to understand them more by the grace of God. Now, today, I would like to test one of the points that I found in a commentary. In the introduction to these letters... They stated that, indeed, these seven letters are to seven literal churches of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Yet these churches are representative. That is, these churches and the letters to them represent the spectrum of spiritual conditions that may be found in a Christian church. There are seven churches. So we're going to have an array of things that matter And as we studied, we realized that not every church is the same. They're different. We look through these churches and we find they are a cross-section of Christian churches. Some of them have strengths and weaknesses that are unique. Sometimes there's overlap. I believe as we review these churches and what we have learned, as we recover the primary issue that Jesus addressed to each one, we're going to learn what really matters to Jesus. He pressed the things that mattered in those churches. And in doing so, he presses upon us what matters and ought to matter in the church. So from that, we find out what Christ finds important. And by way of deduction, then, we find out what Christ doesn't seem to believe is as important given that in his divine wisdom he chose not to address that particular issue. So let's go through this passage this morning. And as you can see, we'll have seven points derived from seven letters to seven churches. And each one of these letters, we find out what Jesus wants. So we turn to Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And we find that Jesus wants wholehearted devotion. Jesus wants wholehearted devotion. We know that because Jesus corrected the vigilant church in Ephesus. We read Revelation 2, verse 2. Jesus said to them, I know your works, namely your toil and your patient endurance. As we read on, we realize that this church was toiling and opposing evil, and it was steadfastly weathering hardship. 
but they had a deficiency. We see it in chapter 2, verse 4, where Jesus says to the church, but I have this against you, you have left your first love. Now, I don't know about you, but when I came to this study, I came with assumptions from the things that I had read and heard. And I would say of all the churches that we had studied together, the assumptions about this church were off. I say that in two particular ways. One of the first assumptions is that this church was an Orthodox church. You say, well, was it an Orthodox church? It probably was an Orthodox church. That's probably right. But whether or not it was Orthodox is implied by the text, not stated in the text. I want you to listen carefully or look at chapter 2, verse 2, and notice what Jesus says, particularly in relation to people. 2.2, you cannot tolerate those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. You've certainly been to an airport and been through its security system with its metal detectors and x-ray machines. By way of comparison, this church had a spiritual security system in place. They tested people. They found out which ones were false. You say, why did they do that? Well, they did that because of what the Apostle Paul said to the elders of this church. He warned them in Acts chapter 20 that when he left, that false teachers, wolves, would enter and draw away disciples. Therefore, the Apostle Paul told this church, be alert. And the church listened. And they were a vigilant church. Now, Ephesus was probably vigilant in doctrine. They were probably orthodox, but they were certainly vigilant in membership. You see, to be vigilant in membership is to affirm those who make credible professions of faith, and only those, and to disaffirm those who no longer do. Look at verse 2. They were finding them false. That's different from 2 Timothy 2.15, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, there are many churches today who would claim to be orthodox, like the church in Ephesus, but those churches today who claim to be orthodox are not vigilant as Ephesus was. And I say that because half of their membership is either dead or non-attending. Such disregard for the testimony of Jesus Christ in relation to the people of the assembly was not the case in the church of Ephesus. They were vigilant as directed by the Apostle Paul, and as applauded by Jesus Christ himself in Revelation 2. So the first assumption is that it was an Orthodox church. I find that not to be the main point. It's simply implied. They were a vigilant church. The second assumption is that this was a loveless church. And that assumption is that this church did not love Jesus Christ and or they did not love others. They lacked the right motive of love, and they lacked the proper expression of love. But as you look at the text, you see that they did have the right motive. Look at the end of verse 3. That they are doing all of this, bearing up for my name's sake. What could be a better motive for acting than doing so for Christ's sake? And given the fact that Christ commends them, Christ must have been in that church, must have been in the mind of the people of that church. So Christ was not absent from them. 
So we go on to think, well, did this church have a problem in loving other people? Perhaps. But Christ commends how they act towards other people. You see that constant reference to people in verse 2. And I would also say, especially by way of being a pastor, it is not a stretch to regard careful protection of the flock as an act of love for the flock. The feeling that they cared about each other, or they wouldn't have been so careful. Yet we know that this church lacked love because that was the charge that Christ leveled against them. And given how Christ corrected them in verse 5, he says to them, do the works you did at first. They had done many works for his namesake, but they had not done all that was necessary. If you allow me to use the language of Paul in Galatians, Christ had been formed in them, but only to a degree. And what is unique about this church, among all the churches, that it is only of this church that Christ positively compares himself. He places the church and himself in positive comparison. Verse 6, he says to them, This you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. I want you to just love it for Jesus Christ himself to say what you have is what he has. That would be encouraging. He only says it about this church. Christ is certainly being formed in this church Yet, their devotion was still deficient. What we find in this first letter, I would like to think, is something of that of an all-star athlete. One who has just run his fastest race, and now he stands at the end. He's doubled over on the sidelines, huffing and puffing. And then his coach approaches him, looks him in the eyes, and says, You were slow getting out of the blocks. You see, the church here in Ephesus was an all-star church. They were commended for their works, namely their toil and their endurance. Yet for all their dedication, there was still a deficiency. And Christ's point to this church is that he deserves the wholehearted devotion of the church. And he expects any church that's dedicated but deficient to make up the difference. So he says to them in verse 5, do the works you did at first. And as we close this first letter to the church in Ephesus, our understanding of Jesus Christ is really challenged. You know, how do we think of Jesus Christ? Is he some Santa Claus figure who is happy with anything we give him? What is said here by Jesus Christ may sound harsh then. Why is Jesus being so picky and demanding? Well, he can do that because of who he is. Jesus Christ is the King of heaven who will one day extend his rule over all the earth. Therefore, it is fitting for such a conqueror to expect this of his church. And certainly, I would imagine that it made the rest of the churches tremble. That the church of Ephesus, the great mother church, where the Apostle Paul had ministered, Timothy had ministered, and probably the Apostle John had ministered, could have heard such a thing from Jesus Christ. Jesus wants wholehearted devotion. Now let's move to the second letter, the letter to the church at Smyrna, chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. This is where we learn that Jesus wants resolve. 
Jesus wants resolve. We know that because Jesus comforted the suffering church in Smyrna. This was a church that was just drowning in negative experiences. Look at verse 9. I know your tribulation, namely your poverty, but you're rich, and the slander that you face. You know, this is a persecuted church that was going to face even more persecution. And Jesus says to them in verse 10, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. You see, while Jesus was on the earth, Jesus told his disciples that they would be persecuted for their faith. John chapter 15, verse 20, he said, If they persecuted me, they will persecute also you. Strangely, in America, we don't face persecution. Our nation under God hasn't yet been slaughtered because we have faith in God. Neither have we gone without food, clothing, and shelter because of our faith. We've lived in a bubble. So sometimes it's difficult for us to appreciate this message. But we must know what Jesus Christ expects of our fellow believers around the world who are dying for their faith who are having everything they own taken from them. And we need to know what we ought to do if that comes to America. So what is it that is a comfort to us and a help to us to resolve to be faithful to Jesus Christ? Well, as we go through this letter to the church in Smyrna, it is the knowledge that Jesus understands all the negative experiences of life. He is over them, and He has endured them. He has come under them. Let's look at it, verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, Thus saith the first and the last, that is the eternal sovereign one who is over all things. And then it says, who died and came to light. That is the conquering Savior who has overcome all things. Those words are to encourage this church. Jesus understands all the negative experiences of life because He's sovereign over them. He suffered under them, yet He has overcome all of them. And He bids us to follow Him. He is the guide who says, come, I know the way. And that way might lead to financial poverty or social reproach or even death. But Jesus has already tread that path. And he holds out a promise to all who follow him. Chapter 2, verse 10 and 11. I will give you the crown of life. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. You see, Jesus would have us be resolved in the midst of any trial we face for his namesake. Christ wants a wholehearted devotion. Christ wants resolve. Now we turn to the third letter. Chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, this is the letter to the church in Thyatira. From this letter, we learn that Jesus wants distinction. Distinction. And when I say distinction, I do not mean excellence or eminence or accomplishment. What I mean is a difference. I say that because Jesus confronted the compromised church in Thyatira. This was a church that clung to Christ, but also clung to the world. Look at verse 13. You hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. And that was really, really impressive, given where the church was located. Look at verse 13 at the beginning. 
Notice what Jesus highlights. He highlights their location. I know where you dwell. Where do you dwell? Where Satan's throne is. Jesus tests churches in the worst places, and he commends steadfast churches in the worst places. The problem wasn't where they were. The problem was what was in them. Look at verse 14. But I have a few things against you that you have some there. You say, what was there? They had false teaching, that of Balaam and the Nicolaitans, and sinful living, immorality and idolatry. In some, the church was in Sin City, and the problem was that Sin City was in the church. We know that was a problem because of how Jesus comes to this church and approaches this church. With the church of Ephesus, Jesus comes and he corrects that church. He tells them what they ought to do. Get back to this. He comes to this church with confrontation. Look at verses 12 and 16. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, Thus saith him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Verse 16, Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. And that is particularly startling because of how similar it sounds to Revelation 19 in Jesus' final conquest. Revelation 19, 11, and 15. It says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And the truth that we need to draw from this comparison is that the church better not look like Sin City or it will be struck down like Sin City will be struck down. I mean, you can't blame someone for firing when they see an enemy uniform. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, we have to have a distinction as a church of Jesus Christ. We cannot fit in with the world. So Jesus wants distinction. Fourthly, we come to this letter to Thyatira. Chapter 2, verses 18 to the end of the chapter. And in this letter, we learn that Jesus wants vigilance. We know that because Jesus censured the tolerant church in Thyatira. And what is particularly fascinating is to compare these churches, especially with the church of Ephesus. One had good works galore. Look at verse 19. I know your works, namely your love and faith, evidenced by your service and patient endurance. Good works galore were in Thyatira. Well, when you get to Ephesus, they lacked the works they had at first. But one of them was intolerant. The other one wasn't. Let's read about it in verse 20, Revelation 2, 20. Jesus says to the church in Thyatira, But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel. One of the most countercultural expectations that Jesus has had for a church. Jesus doesn't tolerate everything and everyone. He doesn't support everything and everyone. There are things that he is decidedly against, and therefore he expects the church, his people, to be decidedly against them as well. You know, you and I hear the word intolerance, and we realize that our society says that is a bad thing. But just think for a moment. 
How many people would remain tolerant if a person with a confirmed case of coronavirus walked through the doors? In a moment, people would become very intolerant. And if we understand Jesus Christ and we understand the devastation of sin, we would be a very vigilant church against sin. The sins that devastate a church in Thyatira were immorality and idolatry. Immorality is the intimacy outside of God's design for marriage, and idolatry is worshiping something other than God. And when you reflect on the church that we're familiar with, what sins have been more devastating than those? Allow me to conclude this letter to this church by giving a statement from a missionary update that I read this week came from a family friend missionary couple that I stayed with in the Philippines for a summer. And this is what they said. Would that we believers were as diligent to watch over their hearts with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. Would that we were as diligent as Asians are in wearing their face masks and frequently washing their hands. Would that believers would stay away from sources of known temptation as much as the Vietnamese and Chinese stay away from their quarantined cities. The church in Thyatira was flush with good works, but they were not vigilant about sin. They were wrongly tolerant about what would destroy them. So we need to be vigilant. Move to the fifth church, the church at Sardis, chapter 3 now. Verses 1 through 6, and this is where we learn that Jesus wants integrity. Integrity. We know that because Jesus challenged the dead church in Sardis. It's particularly important for us to draw our understanding of what was this church and what its deadness actually means. To draw it from the passage and not to draw it from popular opinion. Popular opinion says that a dead church is one that is not rocking. It sings hymns. Yet the reverse may actually be the reality. Jesus explained why he labeled this church a dead church in verse 2. Look at it together. Chapter 3, verse 2. I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. But then halfway through the letter, he changes gears. Look at verse 4. But, or yet, you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. Now, I must admit that while I was studying this letter and I came across the terms complete and not soiled or unsoiled or unblemished, my seminary studies immediately kicked in. Because completeness and unsoiled come together in the concept of integrity. Completeness and unsoiled are the two sides of the coin of integrity. Completeness in that it has everything it ought to have unsoiled in that it doesn't have what it shouldn't have. It has integrity. And Christ wants integrity because he condemns this church for its incomplete works, and then he goes on to commend the few who were unsoiled by sin. You see, the church has to have good works that naturally come from the work of the Holy Spirit in every true believer. And the church has to abstain from sin that would pollute their testimony. The church needs to be like Joseph in Egypt and like Daniel in Babylon, like Jesus Christ in the fullness of time. They must have integrity. Church in Sardis didn't. 
We move now to the sixth church, the church in Philadelphia. Chapter 3, verse 7 to 13. This is where we learn that Jesus wants faithfulness. Faithfulness. Jesus cheered the small, steadfast church in Philadelphia. Look at verse 8. I know your works, that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. He said to them, you are small, yet steadfast. And the common assumption is that the success of the church is directly related to the size of the church. Therefore, a small church is an unsuccessful church. Yet Jesus commended the small church in Philadelphia. And the point we learn then is we must refuse to determine success based on the size of the church. Success is not measured by size, but by steadfastness. The reality is that most churches are small churches, and being a small church comes with its challenges. First, being small seems unsuccessful. Second, being small lends itself towards discouragement. And as we read through this letter, Jesus just showers this church with encouragement. He told them who he is, what he has, what he's done, how he is disposed towards them, and what he will do for them. He promised to them that their situation would be reversed, that they would be protected, that he would come for them, that they would be secure, and that they would have a permanent status with him. And all of those assertions and promises are to motivate the church to be faithful, and that's the singular thing he calls on the church to do. He doesn't give them a list of things of how they need to change and grow and explode. He gives them one thing. He says, hold fast. What do you have? Keep on keeping on. So, brothers and sisters in the Lord, how often does the church fret about its strength and its size when it ought to just focus on being faithful to the Lord? What Jesus focused on in this letter to the church, the small, steadfast church in Philadelphia, was faithfulness. That's what we must be. Last, to the seventh church, the seventh letter, the church of Laodicea. Chapter 3, verses 14 to the end. Jesus shows us that he wants usefulness. Jesus wants usefulness. Jesus chided the lukewarm church in Laodicea. As we studied this church, we examined the common assumption that this church needed to get on fire for Jesus. They were lukewarm. They needed to get on fire for him. But what we found was that this church needed to be of use to Jesus. I want you to notice the threefold repetition of cold and hot, verse 15 and 16. I know your works. You are neither, that is to say you're not, you're not cold and you're not hot. I wish that you were cold. I wish that you were hot. So because you were lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You see, water that is cold or hot is useful. That's why we have faucets that have hot and cold. Laodicea wasn't. Therefore, they were worthless and they were wretched because they're self-sufficient and self-deceived. Look at verse 17. You say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. There's their self-sufficiency. There's their independence. Now their self-deception, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So Jesus put this church on notice that apart from him, they could do nothing, John 15, 5. Their money had blinded them to their condition. 
They didn't have an accurate understanding of themselves. And they probably thought that their money made them useful to Christ. Perhaps they had a large missions budget. But their problem was is that they solved everything with their money and they didn't need Jesus. Jesus counsels them, buy from me. You see, a church cannot be of use to Christ without Christ. The church must depend on Christ if they're going to be of use for Christ. And so often our lack of dependence upon Christ shows up in our lack of meditation on God's Word and our lack of prayer. Just think for a moment. Try getting a prayer request out of an American Christian. That's like trying to get Peter to believe that he would desert Jesus in the garden. You see how rare it is to find an American Christian who admits, it's me. It's me, it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. How rare it is to find an American Christian who craves the Word of God as a newborn baby cries for his mother, 1 Peter 2.2. You see, the church of Christ must depend on Christ in order to be useful for Christ. And Christ wants the church to be useful. As we close... Let's reflect on the thought that these letters provide us with a spectrum of instruction for the church. There's a lot of opinions on what the church ought to be. There's a lot of books that give a lot of advice. But as we go through what Jesus said to these churches, we realize what matters. He had perfect knowledge of the church. As it says again and again in these letters, I know your works. He knows everything about them. And he chooses to bring up certain things that he finds significant. He desires and he deserves wholehearted devotion, resolution in the face of persecution, distinction in the world, vigilance against evil, integrity instead of a facade, faithfulness to the end, and usefulness by dependence upon him. That's quite a spectrum of instruction for the church. That's exactly what Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, requires. And we all need to be encouraged about this. By His grace, He can affect all of those things in us, even as He is able to establish His kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And we'll see that come true as the passage goes on. Father, we ask that You will... Work these things into our heart. We are thankful for our Lord Jesus Christ who said these very specific things to the church. And they are value to us. They boil things down for us because we certainly need things to be simple. We struggle with even the simple things. But Father, we are thankful for what you have made plain in these letters. And we do call upon your grace for your help that you would affect all of these things in our life. Believing that you can. You have all power. You can. We pray that you will. And we pray that you will do so for the glory of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.